Spoiler special. Spoiler special. Which one first? Elvis. Coin is going to decide. Okay. All right. I was Heads. That's Heads. Trying. Elvis. Because tra- Elvis famously had a head. Trying to be just to speed things up because this seems to be slowing things down. That's why. How is it slowing things down, Helen? Heads. Our beloved Queen. Good Lord. God save her. Elvis. <laughs> On the bottom of this coin is a frog. God save her. Maybe a toad. I'm not sure. Hang on. Let the record show we could have started 30 <laughs> seconds phone. ago. Okay, Elvis? just, just freaking flip the phone. flip the coin. All right. Good Lord. It's best of three, by the way. Why? Because it's fair. Frog. What did they say? Black phone. Black phone. Okay, thank you. One one. Okay. Queen equalizes C. You're going. Why does this have to be best of three? Why does because it? Because the tension. <gasps> Thank you very much. What is it? Okay. Like I said. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> oh, dearly me. All right, here we go. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the latest in our series of spoiler special podcasts. This one is dedicated to. Uh-huh, uh-huh, I'm all shook up. The Black Phone, Scott Derrickson's. <laughs> <laughs> you can see it coming a mile away. It we could. Should have. Yeah. Do you know what? I didn't. But what? I really, really should have. <laughs> Oh, Ben. The heat right. wave has fried your brain. No, no, no. I'm only kidding. Because to bring the listeners in on this, we have two spotter specialists recorded in one session today. One is Elvis. The other one is a black phone. We tossed a coin to see which one goes first, and Elvis won out by sheer dint of two Her Majesty the Queens, two one frog. That's the things on either side of my 50p piece. So we are doing Elvis instead. So I just did a little fake out intro just to get Ben Travis, who is here. Hello, Ben. Hello. And Helen O'Hara, who's here. Hello. And I'm Chris Hewitt, of course. And uh, just to get them, you know, a bit of fun, a bit of fun, get the energy up in the room before you we talk about this movie. All shook up. All shook up. Anyway, that was a fake intro, so now it's time for the real intro. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the latest in our series of Spoiler Special Podcasts. This one is dedicated to a movie in which a young man is entrapped by an older gentleman who has evil designs on him. It is, of course, Scott Derrickson's The Black Phone, no, it's Elvis. It's Elvis, isn't it? It's Elvis. It's Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, which is a cradle-to-grave, soup-to-nuts, amped-up, Luhrmann-fied biopic of the king of rock and roll, Elvis Aaron Presley. And for this podcast, I'm joined, of course, by Helen Louise O'Hara? Yes. Hello. Good. Excellent. And Ben... Stuart, no. Cuthbert. It's an S. No. It's an S because his Twitter handle is Ben S. Travis. And do you know what my first tweet was? Severus. The S stands for name. Silent. Silencio. Stupendous. Snape. Septimus. Se- I, I might change it to Septimus. I mean, I think everybody should. It's got to be Stephen. It's got to be Stephen. Simon. 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 There we go. We got there in the end. Ben, Simon, Travis. There you go. Very, very exciting indeed. But before we hear from my two colleagues of such lethal cunning and, of course, myself, let's hear from the man who made this film. It is, of course, the one, the only Baz Luhrmann. Listeners to the regular podcast will have heard 
10 minutes or so of this on the regular podcast last week. It's a bit of a, a teaser, something with which to whet your appetite for more Baz. But here you have the whole thing unexpurgated, uh, all 20-ish minutes of it. So we got into it, uh, the film that is, in a London hotel room a couple of weeks ago and I had a great time talking to Baz about this very interesting subject. Do please enjoy. Oh. We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the director of Elvis, Mr. Baz Lerman. Hello, devil, are you, sir? I am delighded to be here. I am delighted to have you here. Uh, can There's I start so much with... delight going around. No, no, it's amazing. It's like a delight festival. Uh, can I start with a confession? Yeah, confess. <laughs> yeah, yes, my son. Well, I feel your burden. What do you have I'm, to do? I'm going to lie back. Yes, I should have a chaise long here. We should, mm, we should, we should, we should un- and then what happened? We should unburden ourselves. I see. Um, I will confess that the first time I saw the trailer for this movie, I was not sold in Austin. Sure. Uh, I'm sure not the only one. I grew up, as we were just talking mm-hmm. off mic, mm-hmm. I grew up, my sister's an Elvis fanatic. Her room was emblazoned, I mean yeah. emblazoned with, yeah. with Elvis memorabilia and posters yeah. and whatnot. And the first time I saw Austin, I thought, he sounds great and he's got the movements down, but he doesn't look like Elvis. And yeah. I don't know whether I can get past that over two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. And I did. Mm-hmm. Because there's something chameleonic about it. There's something, there's, yeah. there's almost a, there's a weird, yeah. almost alchemy that happens where he becomes Elvis. Austin, Is that I call it Austin Elvis. Okay. Yeah. Is that something you found when, in terms of, I, I think, was, I think, was it important to you that, you know, very, people, very. Yeah. I think what you've got to understand is that we're talking about the man, a man more, who is the most impersonated uh, human being on the planet. I mean, there are actual competitions yeah. in the South where I've seen junior, like 20, 18 year old kids going, oh, I'm in grade six of the Elvis impersonation. They call them tribute artist contributions, right? Now, the thing about that is, there's a very big difference between an impersonation where someone's had surgery to look at, or someone actually happens to look a lot like Elvis, and actually the humanization, like what Oz does is he humanizes him. He makes him a person. And I think the takeaway experience you probably had was, oh, I met someone I thought I, that I never really knew. Mm. Because, you know, those iconic moments, you know, him in the comeback, him in the white jumpsuit, they have been copied to a T. There's no doubt about it. Mm. Priscilla said, like, you know, Priscilla has no connection to the estate. She doesn't get anything out of the film. There was a period when we lost contact and it was difficult. She was she was exactly like you. She was understandably uh, uh, she she was anxious and trepidatious and did not think Austin could pull it off. So when she went into the screening, I was in the air, and you can imagine that we our stomachs were churning. What would she think? Because if there's anyone who's going to pick a fake, it's going to be Priscilla. And when she came out, I got, I got word that the security guard was um, crying. She was a female security guard. I said, what happened? Did she get insulted? What she said, oh, no, over Priscilla's emotional response. And it took a day, and then Priscilla wrote to me, and she said, every breath, every word, every eye, every movement, but, and, but most importantly, his humanity and his anger. And no one's ever said that. Like, Elvis could get angry, you know, mm. frustrated. Mm. And he said... She said, if my husband was here, he would say, hot damn, you are me to Austin. And that's it. What Austin and I, but particularly Austin committed to, was not doing an impersonation. 
Yeah. Was to try and capture the spirit of the humanity of the man. There are moments in this as well that reminded me, it's totally different, obviously, but reminded me of uh, the feelings I had watching Peter Jackson's Get Back documentary. I don't know whether you've had time uh, to I see ha- that. I, I have, and I tell you, I know Peter, I think it's the greatest work of art that is the truest insight to the creative process. People think they know how things are made. Watching those four young men make music that we know as classical iconic music, you know, long and winding road, it drags a bit, you know, what do you got for me? (laughs) Oh, I've got this one, something in the way she pancakes, 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 (laughs) you know. I mean, oh, it's a bit slow, isn't it? Oh, well, you know. That is that's that's the creative process. Yeah, it's amazing. But but what it also does is it shows you the the Beatles laughing and joking and palling around and and being friends. And we mm. know as the audience that a year later it's over for them as a band, and eleven yeah. years later John Lennon is dead. Yeah. And there's a there's a there's a feeling where you want to almost reach into the screen and grab them and smack their heads together yeah. and go stop talk to each other because this yeah. is going to happen and it, and you can't avoid it. Yeah. And I felt that watching Elvis. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting and impactful and emotional I feel that you feel the same way that obviously it's a tragedy what happened to Elvis and yeah. there's there's you you purposefully don't show the latter years the the, the two years but that, that lead up to his death you show the unchained melody sequence yeah but otherwise it feels like you you are averting your eyes out of respect to yes him look I I I mean I I lived in um, the south I had a space at the back of Graceland, an office. Wow. I was privileged to see things no one has ever seen. There are things in that space that no one's allowed to see. And I and I was and Angie in the archives. I mean, the great thing about the Presleys are they're hoarders. So they kept Vernon would keep every forget every check, you know, every like you know, if Elvis you know, had a chewing gun wrapper, it would be item thirty five on a card. <laughs> so there's nothing in there. But I I think that you're right. It's a tragic to me it's a tragic American opera. Yeah. And it's more about America. It's as much about America and about show biz, mm-hmm. the tension between the seller and art. And um, Elvis is at the crossroads of pop culture in the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. And and he's also at the crossroads of, if you're talking about America, of race. Yeah. Uh, you know, no issue of race in America, no Elvis, you know. But, yeah, I I think that nonetheless, I mean, that – final performance that's his voice even though it's austin playing it yeah and you hear that voice that may be the best he's ever sung and he's dead you know a few weeks later and i think that's what he says at the end of the movie i won't say how it happens because spoiler alert you see the real elvis actually say that speech about without a song and the final line he says is i just keep singing the song and i think that's the orphean part of it is that in the end yeah there are singers, but the humanity that he can do when he takes a song and what he does to us, how he uplifts our spirits, that's what I wanted to leave the audience with. Mm. And there's there's a couple of things I wanted to uh, dig into there uh, based on what you just said, but I, I wanted to talk about the, the fact that you do have archive footage of the real Elvis at yeah. the end. We do get to see him in, in video and pictures. And if I'm right in thinking, Baz, I think I noticed a couple of times 
you meticulously recreate a lot of stuff with Austin, but are there a couple of times where the real Elvis is in yeah. archive footage earlier yeah, on as well? Are, yeah, I, I make a statement. It's a bit of a, you know, you might call it meta, mm-hmm. but in the very beginning, you see Austin doing the karate in the blue suit, and right next to him is the real Elvis, right in front of your face. <laughs> it's Austin and Elvis, equal. It looks like a split screen, yeah. 50-50 the screen. Yeah. They're both doing the karate. And, and what I'm really saying is, look, I'm saying, look, there's the real Elvis and there's Austin. Austin's physically exactly the same as real Elvis. You know, does it matter that his ears aren't exactly the same ears? You know, like he's embodying the spirit of the man. And you know what? I haven't had one person come up to me and say, oh, that's the real Elvis. I mean, he's 50% of the screen, (laughs) right? 50% of the screen, you know? That's a good point because I was my eye was was focusing on other things, little little yeah. glimpses in the corner. Well, no, of, no, in that particular but in that bit, moment, yeah. in that moment, there's only only yeah. Austin <laughs> and they're, and they're both in karate. So you're either looking at the real one, going, going, gee, Austin's good in that, or you're looking at Austin and going, like he, you know, I mean, nobody has mentioned it. Do you know what it is? It's, it's like the, uh, did you see, like, I don't know if you saw the meme on Twitter a few years ago about the dress that people couldn't decide yes. whether the dress was... Yes. was, was I have that meme. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> I know, it's exactly like that. And there's a few other moments where in some of those layered, what I call poetic glue moments, mm-hmm. um, I put a bit of real Elvis in there. Yes. You yeah. Know? And people, and sometimes I've had real Elvis but Austin do the voice because his voice is so accurate. And I'm, I'm not doing this to sell or whatever. I honestly have to turn to my guys sometimes and go, is that, is that Austin or Elvis? <laughs> like, like just because sometimes we've had real rule levels because couldn't get Austin to the ADR or even in the singing. I mean, Austin sings all the young performance Elvis. And sometimes I have to check. I, um, there's a song, we're going to call it the Tupelo Shuffle. Mm-hmm. And it's not released yet. Obviously, Elvis was from Tupelo. Mm-hmm. But a young African-American performer called Sway Lee, I don't know if you know Sway Lee, uh, he's from Tupelo. Okay. And a DJ called Diplo is from Tupelo. <laughs> and we've made a song with all three of them and Big Boy Crudup's in it too. That's amazing. Uh, but but, the, but, the, but the, that's a rap mama in it. Yeah. I honestly thought it was Elvis sample. And then they said, no, 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 because it's in the minor. I said, oh, yeah, it's a minor. It's the minor version. That means it's Austin, you know. <laughs> I keep an eye out for that one. Yeah. Uh, but you mentioned there the uh, and one of the with the big themes of the film is this connection that Elvis felt to black music and to and to gospel music. Yeah, more uh, than that. Was yeah. that something that you really wanted to emphasize? And, and I, I I just think you can't tell this. See, it's not like I think, and I'm not correcting you, but it's not just a connection. I mean, you know, as you saw in the film, I mean. I tracked down this older African-American gent who sadly passed last year called Sam Bell. It took a while and in Tupelo. And he explained to me how Elvis, for a period of time, just him and his mum, had to move into one of the few white houses in an entirely black neighborhood. They were, this wasn't like on the edge of a black neighborhood. They were in the middle of it. And so this gang of young African-American kids at the age of about 12 or 13 befriended Elvis. And they would run off to juke joints and to uh, Pentecostal tents. And that story where Sam Bell goes to grab Elvis and pull him out of the tent and the priest preacher grabs him and says, leave him be, he's with the spirit. That is told to me verbatim. I have it on video. It's actually out on YouTube because someone hacked us about two years ago. 
right? So go on YouTube and look for Sam Bell and Elvis, right? right? And he tells the story. Now, not only that, so he grows up in the community. He he, but has he's one of the. I mean, some B Mitchell will tell you who owned Club Handy. Most often, he was the only white face in Club Handy, and sometimes I couldn't let him in because of segregation. Not because couldn't let him in because kind of like the cops would beat up on Sam B Mitchell letting a white kid in. I mean, his friendship with BB King—it's real. What people don't understand is how dangerous it was. It was dangerous, like, and all the um, Nelson George is doing a documentary Elvis through a black prison, and Nelson George wrote, uh, was critical of Elvis in the eighties, mainly because Elvis made all the money. Now, we now know, but as far as black artists go, I mean, it isn't just, you know, I mean. The friendship, the bond, the relationship, the natural connection, you know, and the love of the music was mutual. It was just, I'm not selling this. I'm just, I'm an Australian, by the way, you know. Yeah. I'm from a small country town. I mean, I did Moulin Rouge. I, you know, I didn't grow up in France. I did Gatsby. I didn't grow up in America. I'm the ultimate outsider. I'm just telling the story from incredibly dense research being in the field, speaking to people who knew Elvis, you know, um, the stuff in the movie, sometimes I've conjunct a time and place, but there is a historical reference for everything in that movie. You mentioned one of the, another one of the themes of the movie is this push and pull between the seller, show business, yes. and the artist. And yeah, that's personified. Snowman and the Showman. Yeah. Snowman and the Showman, absolutely. And that's personified, of course, in Colonel Tom Parker. Yes. Uh, I... I'm fascinated by the decision to make him the the framing device, this unreliable narrator. Yeah. When did you when did you happen upon that idea? Well, actually, I never really set out to do a biopic because people do those really well of Elvis. But I was always amazed the way Shakespeare would take a historical figure and explore a larger idea. Now I'm a, I'm a devoted fan of um, Milos Forman's Amadeus, mm-hmm. and if you said, is that about? Mozart, I'd say, well, not really. It's about jealousy mm-hmm. because the equal screen time is for a guy called Salieri. Mm-hmm. Ever heard of him? <laughs> Precisely. Your Honor, I rest my case, <laughs> right? So this, I think, I couldn't work out. I knew that Elvis was a great canvas to explore America, but I couldn't work out what the inn was. And the more I learned about Parker, never a colonel, never a Tom, never a Parker, spoiler alert, <laughs> and the fact that he was a snowman, which is he he just loved pulling the wool over people's eyes. I mean, he's a nefarious background. He runs away. He joins the carnival, and he's looking for his geek. There are Easter eggs in there. I was talking to Guillermo del Toro about this the other day. The colonel's favorite film was Nightmare Alley. He played it over and over again. No he, way absolutely way and there are easter eggs in the movie about that he obsessively watched that movie obsessively i even shot scenes of him doing it which i didn't use and he was looking for a carnival act that would make him great and he didn't care about music but when he saw this kids action on teenagers who were a new they were a brand new source of income because before they had no money post-war they suddenly were, were a market. He went, that's the greatest carnival act I've ever seen. And so in lies this kind of, and he's a genius too. I mean, he was a genius. 
you know, because he couldn't leave the country. I mean, he invented he invented merchandising, the satellite concert, the the um, greatest hits album. I mean, he's he's so he's such a snowman because he went, oh, I know. Why don't I just get all the good bits and put it on one album? I won't have to spend a single dollar, and I can get a whole lot of money if p- people don't have to put on ten records. They just put one on, and they'll buy the music all over again. Mm. You know? Yeah, he's a, he's a <laughs> evil genius. <laughs> evil genius. And a giant, by the way, giant character. Like the characterization of Parker. If he was in this room, we would be. We would be unsettled. He'd be making jokes and really charismatic and saying witty things and these. Colonelisms, you know. The Snowman's League was a real club. LBJ was a member of it. You know what? Free to get in, $10,000 to get out. <laughs> that kind of stuff, you know? Wow. Um, well, there's just uh, two very, very quick things I, w- I wanted to talk about with you. Uh, one is that the this is a screenplay you've, you've obviously slaved on for for a long time, yeah. to the point where you're uh, credited as co-writer twice, which... which, yeah. <laughs> which, which Let me, I'd love to talk about that because yeah. I'm kind of... I mean, I'm not allowed to show irritation because it becomes clickbait and younger audiences know what clickbait is. But the thing is, I try and get my name off films, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I don't mind. I mean, I liked it when Orson Welles could just go, at the end go written, produced and directed by, right? But we have all sorts of union mechanisms. So I started the story with Jeff, uh, with, with Donna Mm -hmm. and then he went and did a draft of it. And then I decided I don't want to do it. I'm doing my Chinese film. This is like 10 years ago. And then I worked very diligently with a young writer called, called, um, Sam Bromell, who worked with me, started on Gatsby, and we worked together on the get down and was evolving. And he and I really did months and months and months on structuring it. And then he was, um, then he, you know, he got ma- he was married, had a child. I wear people out. And then <laughs> my dear, dearest friend, Craig Pierce, who we've been to high school together, and we've written almost everything together, was available. I said, look, why don't we do a pass? So we went and did a real, really serious work on it. And then, and then actually, ultimately, the pandemic allowed me to completely restructure the first act. But the problem is the writers killed get in there and of course you want all of their names on there they all want their names on there great and so i to me i'm like great put all their names on there i don't need more credits but the writers guild won't allow their names to be on there unless mine is on there as well so it's so embarrassing to me that it goes you know basil and film and then all you ever see is like 15 versions of my name you know because Really, I'm a collaborator. You yeah. know, I mean, I, I, I write, but I'm a serial collaborator. So it's a bit. I, I've, I would prefer that there was a simpler way where I could have just had one writing credit. That would have been my preference. I see. Okay. Well, uh, but th- this is not how union rules work. And just real quick, the last thing I wanted to sure. talk about was the comeback special. Yes. Because that seems that it's something that's hugely important, obviously hugely important to Elvis. Yeah. can't believe he was only 33 when he made that. Incredible. It's wild. Uh, but also hugely important to you as a filmmaker yeah. to really slow things down and focus on that. Yeah. Let me tell you something. In Cannes, and this doesn't happen, when Little Richard came on, um, the audience broke into spontaneous applause, which was wonderful. But when El, um, Austin did the comeback bit, they they literally, they, unfortunately, they applauded so long, they couldn't hear the next dialogue, right? <laughs> but no, not unfortunately, it was amazing, the reaction to that number. 
And yes, the comeback special is really important. And I spent a lot of time with Steve Binder. So if people say things like, oh, you mean you know, RFK wasn't assassinated during rehearsals of... Unfortunately, yes. There's a book written by Binder, but Binder is very articulate and a great help. And, and now, of course, I couldn't do all of it. And of course, you know, they wrote If I Could Dream as a response to RFK, but over maybe four days. And of course, Elvis didn't walk on in the middle of them about to shoot, shoot the Christmas number and they turn around and he just does the tag. Their devices, yes. And of course, I got all the other bits of the special and, and jammed them together in the sort of Colonel's fever dream. That's my excuse for having the Colonel because how do you get it all done? Mm. You know, mm. but the essence of it and the factual realities that RFK was shot only 20 minutes away from where they were rehearsing and that that song, If I Could Dream, was written as a response to that is absolutely dead accurate and very important because Elvis uses it for the first time to pull away from the colonel. The colonel yeah. already had every single Christmas number worked out. And he pulls away and with Binder and they do gospel and they do, they have, you know, uh, black artists in it. They have, you know, Puerto Rican, you know, it's, it's Elvis being Elvis and finding himself. And that begins the period of him going back to Memphis and doing all that incredible music at American studios. And then he gets caught in a trap and he can't get out of a hotel <laughs> but we're not but that's a spoiler alert <laughs> on that note Baz Lerman I've got to let you go it's been an absolute pleasure it's thank you so much pleasure. great to talk to someone who knows what they knows their subject oh there you go thank you very much likewise likewise indeed and cut okay so that was Baz Lerman and now it is time for us to dig deep or deep-ish into Elvis the movie not necessarily the man although we can talk about the man mm. if you want are you, are you guys Elvis fans let's start there shall we Moderate. I like some of the music, but I wouldn't say I'm. And, what, and I'm, what I, music? I knew the. He, he recorded some music, I believe, didn't he? He was a popular. <laughs> popular beat. Popular well, popular one man beat combo, yes. <laughs> um, but no, I. But which, which, which era? Which era of Elvis? Because there are distinct eras of Elvis. Oh, I know, but I've, but I've come across all of them over the years. And mm-hmm. I, uh, he's got a great voice and, and he, can, he can sing a song. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I like Elvis. We've. we've... <laughs> I don't feel like this is. We've we brought the, the big guns here. The, the, the controversial no, opinions I, are, are really stacking <laughs> up. Elvis had a great voice and could sing a song. Yeah. Says Helen O'Hara. There you go. I'm I'm putting it putting that out there. I'm says just Mojo willing. magazines. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, look, he, he's no Aretha Franklin, but he could sing a song. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> we do battle of the biopics here. Oh no, shots, that was a, no. In fairness, shots uh, fired. But that's one of the interesting things, actually, because I think they got the sense of who Elvis was as a performer actually better here than they did in something like Respect. Because, and, and not least because, I mean, obviously they, they had, I think, they had Austin Butler sing the early stuff and then yes. they mix it with like actual Elvis. Actual Elvis. Yes. Um, and the thing about Aretha Franklin is nobody sounds like Aretha and, so, and they didn't have Aretha. And, and look, Jennifer Hudson, Cynthia Revo, incredible performers, better than I'll ever be, but like, they're not Aretha Franklin. And and I think they maybe made the, the right decision here to go with Elvis because he's such an incredibly recognisable voice. The richness of the tone, the 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 way he enunciates his words or doesn't sometimes, just he he, he had a real... It, it, it's just a very warm sound. It's an incredibly powerful sound. And I, I don't think you can 
easily replicate that, even though there are all those performers out there who try to. Well, listen, there is a debate to be had about who is the better singer all day long. Uh, What I will say is that we can perhaps leave it at this. That both of them have two of the all-time great voices. That if you if you are going to put together a list, I would say of of top ten singers, uh, any genre, any gender, mm. I think Elvis and Aretha are in. Elvis there. and Aretha, Absolutely. yeah. I put in. I would also put in Sinatra. I would also put in Streisand. There, there we go. There's two. Wow. Of them. I know Dylan always gets put in these lists on the basis that he not, couldn't not sing, but he still well. Not singer. No, but Come do you on. remember there was that Come list a few years Come ago, on. and they said, look, for a guy who can't sing, he's a hell of a singer, and they put him at number one. <laughs> I was like. I see what you're going, but no. It's like putting Twin Peaks Return as number one film of the year, and that's that's just madness. It's a madness. <laughs> was that the list as well that didn't have Beyonce in it? Which, if you're going to go for the modern singers, like it feels like really Beyonce and Lady Gaga are kind of up there as the <laughs> holy shit they can sing. They can Interesting. Belt it out. Interestingly, though, I read a fantastic article on the All A W L website, which is now kind of semi-defunct. I think it's still up there. It was the greatest diva of the last 25 years. And they argue convincingly, I have to say, that Beyonce is not as good as you think she is as a singer. (gasps) Now, I'm not saying I accept them in all ways. And of course, this article was written 10, 15 years ago, and she's come a long way, I think, since. However, there's there's a case to be made. I'm just saying. I assure you this is a film podcast. Anyway, yes, we're going to talk about We'll get on to talking about films (laughs) in a second. It's an interesting debate, though, isn't it? Don't you think? Yeah. I think it's an interesting debate. You know, who would you put in your top 10 singers of all time? Right in. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we'll take calls on the subject as well. If those 0800 600 600, if you uh, tell us who see. you think is the greatest singer of all time. And uh, Ben, where do you stand in Elvis? I grew up in a time of Elvis purely just being like a pop cultural thing, mm. like a pop cultural icon. The music, really, the main thing that I remember growing up was that remix, that like noughties remix of A Little Less Conversation that was everywhere. It was all over the radio. I feel like a film like this is the first thing in a long time that's going to be, I don't know, the thing that gets a new generation into Elvis, of of digging into, obviously, the the long lineage of, of music, which you know the big stuff, but there were certain bits of music here that I didn't know as well. But also, like, who this guy was, what his origin story was and I use that phrase purposefully because I love how much it dealt in something that I'd heard a bit about but how much he was inspired by comic books Mm. uh, by well as we now know him Shazam but Captain Marvel at the time Mm -hmm. Um, and kind of digging into who was this guy where did he come from why was he such a big deal Um, which I think you know that in the general ephemeral sense but the specifics of his story I didn't really know much going into this film and I was kind of hooked along for the ride. There was an interesting challenge, I think, for Lerman and, and screenwriters f- for this story at this time. The many, many screenwriters. The many <laughs> screenwriters. Because um, on one hand, you know, they want to tell this story of Elvis bringing, you know, a lot of black music uh, with him into, you know, into his level of success. So he, yeah. he drew hugely, he, he relied upon, he, he drew from um, black music. And and that was one of the things that kind of powered him to, to get to where he was. And that is, you know, appropriation. At the same time, he, he did what this film makes the case for is that he also did try to be somewhat of an ally by the standards of his time. And it's a, it's an awkward thing. And it's something that the film has been critiqued on and, and, and that has opened a wider discussion. I, I don't think it, he 
I don't. Th- I don't know if he would have called it appropriation at the time. I, well, Do you know what a, I mean? It's one of I these. I think things. that's an interesting discussion. At what point mm. is inspiration? A lot of people would just say that it's inspiration. I agree. Obviously, that's but how cultures time, yeah. and blend and how we grow and how we get new things. There's a really interesting. Um, Baz Lerman addressed it in the in the article about you know Elvis's exposure to black culture and to gospel music growing up and how that was a huge part of of who he was as a person going forward and it certainly reflected in the music, certainly in, in the music of the latter stages of Elvis's career. There's an awful lot of, you know, gospel and as it was back then, R and B and soul in in the seventies era Elvis. Mm-hmm. Everything kind of post comeback especially when he starts doing his thing in the on the stage stuff, in, in yeah, Vegas. Yeah. yeah. And that's all really well and good. And it was all my list of questions to ask Baz. I mean a lot of stuff I wanted to ask Baz and didn't get around to. And one question I thought it might perhaps have been a little bit delicate to ask is that for all this, the, all the, the, the idea that the film tries to frame him as, a, as an ally of black people, it's noticeable that he surrounded himself with white with people. With white people. And, 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 you know, there is a question. I mean, the, the, the thing about being inspired by black music at the time is that obviously he was given opportunities that black artists were simply not. There was no opportunity for an equivalent black artist. And we see, you know, B.B. King in the film to succeed in the way that Elvis was allowed to succeed by by the music industry at that time. Um, so, so you you know, the, that's, that's where it gets icky because he was, sure, he was drawing inspiration from the same sources they were, but he was allowed opportunities that they absolutely were not. Um, and then, yes, the question of his allyship and the levels to which he went um, is, mm. is an interesting one. But, but then at the time, again, you know, it would have been very unusual for him to be able to surround himself with a lot of black people. There, there is an argument, yeah. you know. It would, I mean, I'm not saying it was impossible, and maybe he should have done more. And I, th- I hope if he were around nowadays, he would be be doing a lot more than he than he did. But you know, I, at the same time, I'm trying not to completely judge him by the standards of our time and give him a little bit of leeway, perhaps unfairly. I think the most interesting comparison point that the film makes is the scene with Little Richard in it, where it's like, oh, here is a performer who has all of the energy, all of the charisma, who is really like the major pioneer of this sound, of this kind of what we know now to be rock and roll, but who is performing primarily for a black audience and who is kind of off in the fringes in the smaller venues while Elvis is off having that success. I think that is the really interesting comparison point here. Obviously, um, you have that that scene between them in the uh, mm. in the bar. And yeah, that's absolutely true of Little Richard. But you also had um, what's her name, Yola Cordy, as uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp, and she really didn't have the opportunities that the guys had. I, I was just listening recently to uh, the fantastic podcast, the Empire Podcast, the Empire Podcast. Of course, you must remember this. No, that's the name of the no, podcast. No, I did, I did no, last week. Okay, yeah. yeah. The Empire Podcast uh, is, is a great podcast. Another film podcast that is great is one Disney called Disneyversity. <laughs> another film podcast that is great is, of course, Bah Humbug. Bah Humbug. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and yet another one, which isn't made by anyone in this room, is You Must Remember This. Get out. Yeah. We must but remember what? They just did a, a series on Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin, and the mm. contrast between their careers is also. Fascinating, Fascinating yeah. you know. So, the, look, I mean, it, this is not exactly news. We are not 
I'm not coming in with the hot takes here to say there was a lot of racism in the music industry in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and indeed today. But um, Elvis was a good singer. He could sing Elvis, some songs. Yep. And there was and there was racism. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I am blowing your minds, guys. But try to keep up here. Hot take, uh, Helen, over here. <laughs> But but look, I th- I think that the film tried to to hew a delicate line, and uh, it absolutely hasn't gone as far as some people wanted it to, and it probably has gone farther than some you know redneck Elvis fans are, are comfortable with. Not saying all redneck are all Elvis fans are rednecks or no, anything else, not, yeah. but you know I'm sure there are some people out there who are outraged to see him hanging out with black people, but um, they can you know go suck a rug. So they can suck a rug. Well, I was trying to be polite. I feel like this film did more, though, than other biopics kind of have or might in terms of you could, you shouldn't, but you could get away with having like a scene or two scenes of Elvis like, ah, here he is seeing various elements of black music and going, ah, I can do this. But I I liked the fact that the film kept going back to that through yeah. throughout this very long runtime. It felt like... I don't know, other films might have minimized that aspect and I thought they did at least a decent job of trying to continue that point of how connected he was or how much inspiration mm-hmm. he took from black music. And I wonder if there's a little bit of um, a contrast there. I mean, you, you you know, you also have the sort of country guys being quite uncomfortable with him and not quite understanding what he's doing mm-hmm. and how it's how it's different. And, um, and you obviously have the colonel exploiting the hell out of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it you know, the film almost paints it, his his black friends as a place of safety and a place of inspiration and a place of, you know, encouragement in a way that is not always, you know, it can be a little bit flattening, sort of just the the good guys kind of stereotype isn't isn't exactly rounded either. But you know, there's there's an element there of that being where he felt safe and comfortable and where he drew inspiration and where he he felt like he was one of the crowd and he could blend in and he could talk with his peers mm-hmm. in those scenes mm-hmm. in a way that is very much in contrast to some of the scenes uh, with a lot of white people, frankly. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for, for me, music is perhaps the most fluid of modern art forms. And, you know, not even modern art forms, but, you know, I think, it, it, I think it's one of those things that, you know, everybody, think of a great artist, think of a great band, and they're standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're influenced by what came before. And I loved, one of the things I love about Elvis, because I grew up, as I said in the interview with Baz Luhrmann, I grew up in a household filled with Elvis's music and filled with the images of Elvis on my sister's walls and ceiling of her room, because she, she was and still is a massive Elvis fan. It makes it really easy to buy her a present at Christmas. You just get her any old tat with Elvis's face on it, and we're good to go. But I grew up in a house with Elvis's music, and for a long time I rejected Elvis because I was just subjected to it every day, pretty much. And it wasn't until later I started to appreciate Elvis and you know really listen to the songs. And some of the songs are, you know, some of my favorites of all time. You mm-hmm. know, the American Trilogy, and you know, If I Can Dream, and you know, Suspicious Minds. I mean, I love In the Ghetto, and his kind of post sixty eight comeback special, Las Vegas era for me is is yeah, my favorite. Is it's nice my favorite special. Elvis yeah. era. You know, but I, I you know grew up watching Elvis films, all that sort of stuff. But for me now, listening to his music, I love the fact that his music is a melange and it's it's a mixture of, you know, for, for him the the white culture that that he grew up in and the black culture that he loved as well. And I think it's great that that the most popular, one of the most popular recording artists of all time is someone who has shown that you can blend mm. 
music oh, from yeah. different cultures. Yeah. And that's for me, that's to be that's to be applauded. Um, but you know, hey, listen, let's talk about the movie specifically. Yeah, because this movie is. <laughs> It's fucking bonkers. <laughs> it's bonkers. When it started, and it begins with like Colonel Tom Parker's death dream <laughs> in purgatory, walking through the halls of a Vegas casino while the camera's spinning around. And then in the middle of that, there's like a roulette wheel spinning around the other way and there's drone shots. And I was like, this is... I, I expected some kind of Baz out there kinetic filmmaking-y stuff, but it was off the charts. It was crazy. The first few minutes, I felt like I was being spun around yeah. in a centrifuge, and I, I kind of love that about it. It's almost exactly what I was expecting. <laughs> whenever you heard, you know, whenever you heard that Baz Luhrmann was going to do an Elvis yeah. biopic, I was hoping there wasn't going to be some sort of safe by the numbers thing like a Bohemian Rhapsody or like, I mean, Respect's pretty much like that, isn't it? A little bit, To, to, yeah, to, an, to, to an extent. Yeah. Um, and what I was hoping that it would be bazified to a great extent, and it is bazified because the first, what? Almost an hour. Almost, almost like, an hour yeah. of this movie is on fucking speed. It's just, <laughs> I don't mean that in, in terms of the drugs. I mean, it's on fast forward. It feels like it's on fast forward, which is, you know, let's be honest, every Baz Luhrmann movie does this. He just throws all this information out in the first few minutes. There's a barrage of imagery and then it settles yeah. down. I, I just rewatched Strictly Ballroom after watching this and I had forgotten how pacey that was. Because yeah. it's the it's actually, the, and this perhaps is disappointing to Baz, I don't know, but like it's the dialogue scenes that have stayed with me. It's the little... Convert quiet conversation scenes between dance rehearsals that have actually stayed with me, apart from some of the jokes which are inspired in that movie. Mm. Um, and and similarly, almost with with Moulin Rouge, I went back and watched rewatched that last year, and some of the cutting in that is so fast it's oh almost unwatchable. But again, what stays with you are the sort of the human scenes, the and I think yeah. you know this one does race through. Uh, Lots of stuff, and sometimes that really works. You know, the, the sheer pace, as we know from other biopics of other musicians of this era, as we know from Walk the Line and Ray and things like that, the, the pace of these these lives, of these artists' lives when they were touring was relentless and nonstop, and it was wearing and damaging and and dizzying. And and you get a sense of that from from the first hour of this this movie a little bit. Um, but I'm I was also very relieved when it. Finally, just calm down, just just a bit. You're on that roulette wheel, aren't you? Right from the off, and you're you're spinning, you're spinning, you're spinning, and only eventually does it. The centrifugal forces begin to slow down, and you, you and it stop the world. I want to get off, and eventually, in the second half, the movie kicks in, and you can you can relax and you can breathe with it. But for you know, for example, it's wild. I remember speaking to Austin Butler about this when I interviewed him for the regular podcast, and he's great interviewee. Uh, go back and check that out from the from a couple of months ago now, and. We talked about that, the fact that, you know, he had to do so much for so little screen time mm. of certain things. Like he would have had to spend days, probably days, recreating scenes from Elvis's movies for a one minute montage. Yeah. And that's wild to me because Elvis's film career, you know, again, as someone who's a, an Elvis fan, but I'm not an Elvis expert, someone who's looking at his career and going, that's a huge part of his career. That period where he was basically being flogged on this Hollywood wheel by, you know, he had these frustrated 
you know, ambitions of being a great actor and he wanted to make all these serious films and he gets stuck in this fucking pap instead. Mm. Some of it's really fun, like Fever Las Vegas is a really fun film, but most of it's terrible. But that's condensed to one minute and you go, what the hell? Yeah. What the hell else? But I guess it just shows how much he had done and how much in. he had to fit in. I mean, look, there was probably almost more care and attention for some of those recreations in that montage than there were for some of the films in the first place, which were just churned <laughs> out. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I, not entirely. That's probably meaner than it should be. But do you know what I mean? It's, they really just really did churn them out. They, they plugged him into a script with a cute young man in it and bish bash bosh, mm-hmm. left him in it. Mm-hmm. I think all of that stuff as well, though, gives a sense of the film, on the one hand, having to do the biopic thing and going, okay, yes, this is a very long movie. It's between two and a half and three hours. Uh, so we're going to have to like fly through stuff. We're going to whiz through stuff, while at the same time being extremely comprehensive, it felt to me. The level of detail in those recreations in uh, like I love that m- montage at the end when he's doing the Vegas show and you have that sort of zoom in and he's doing the, the the move where he sort of like flies with his arms outwards with the cape and you get like four or five different versions of that shot yeah. where he's wearing the yeah. same costume but like different, different versions colors, of it yeah. and that is like three seconds of screen time <laughs> but it makes the whole thing feel lavish and yeah. detailed while also going right Elvis, Elvis's life in two hours, 45 minutes, go. Yeah. And I, I, I love that energy of it. For me, that opening hour, that really relentless opening hour, not only kind of gave a sense of, of the relentlessness of his rise, but also the way that Elvis seemed to just accelerate culture itself, mm-hmm. the world itself suddenly sped up to the speed of rock and roll from the sort of... Uh, like lolloping country rhythms to suddenly like it's it's fast beats it's sort of guitar riffs and all of that and yeah the the, the sense of the world speeding up around him as he also sort of sped up everything else yeah. fascinating really to, to know what people who don't necessarily know Elvis or know of his cultural impact what they would make of the depiction of those early concerts I thought they did a really good job of explaining what the heck the hype was. And I think it helped to have, you know, Austin Butler, first of all, give, like, and we talked about this in the regular pod, just an astonishingly good performance. That was just a fantastic, fantastic performance. But also to be super duper sexy in those scenes, it actually, I I was like, okay, I I think I kind of get it. Actually, watching those performances, you're like this this would be pretty hot if you hadn't seen, you know, Magic Mike. I mean, this is... <laughs> which they hadn't. Which they hadn't. Back then, they hadn't. They had not had the chance. Can they you hadn't. imagine? Can you yeah. even imagine, guys? Um, they weren't ready for that yet, but they're kids. <laughs> their kids. Their kids are going to love it. <laughs> but, like, it, it, you know, they they did a really good job in those, in those concert scenes of explaining he really was something different. He did have an effect on people that that they didn't know how to process. And I thought actually really good acting from the extras in the crowd. You could see sort of being almost discombobulated by their own reaction to him and not knowing how to respond. And the men being furious. Except just to <laughs> except just to scream. They just like it was just overwhelming. And I sort yeah. of I really appreciated that. I could really imagine Baz in the edit suite just going, nope, needs more slow-mo crotch shots. <laughs> Stick another one in. Another slow-mo crotch wiggle. Do another one. Um, and that scene, it felt real and true, but it also felt heightened and funny. I was like cackling at that sequence. Yeah. It, there was a glee in getting to represent this kind of sexual excitement and element of liberation that came from those performances. And the kind of, I think the over 
cranked Baz style really lends itself to that kind of heightened reaction from people, the heightened filmmaking and the heightened reactions of the audience as they're suddenly feeling feelings that they've never felt before <laughs> and seeing things that they never thought they'd see. It's a different time. It was it's a different time. But it was also, I think it was, it, it, it got that moment across to me and that, that reaction across to me in a way that a lot of films have failed to do. You know, Walk the Line obviously parodied it. But like, you know, you see documentaries and stuff about the Beatles and it, and it doesn't quite, I, I didn't always quite understand what what was driving them so crazy. And I, I love the Beatles and I, I think their performances are astonishing, but I didn't quite get it in the same way that I did here. So you're with, saying with... the Beatles documentaries need more slow-mo crutch. <laughs> <laughs> that seems um, to be the answer. Yeah, yes. Mr. Mr. Jackson, if but you're listening. only Ringo. They have, the crotch shots have to be of Ringo and they have to be narrated by Ringo. Complicated. Ringo the tank engine was, you know... <laughs> Must be like that. Anyway, <laughs> get the yellow submarines out. Sorry, I'm just sharing all my fantasies now. This is this wow. is wild. Okay. The Beatles, the Beatles. You know, because you know I love the Beatles as I well, do, yeah. and I would absolutely put McCartney in that top ten singers of all time Fair list. Play, yeah. uh, but the Beatles are really fascinating because it's I can't quite fathom it either because the Beatles were cute. Yeah, I think and McCartney especially. McCartney, McCartney super was cute. super cute. Uh, Harrison had that kind of John Nugenty thing going exactly, on. Lots yeah. of hair, lots of mystique. Women seem to love that. Uh, John Lennon had the acerbic wit and was a good-looking guy. Good-looking, you know, you know? yeah, yeah. And Ringo was Ringo. Adorable. But none yeah. of them were pinups, right? No, so I not can never like quite yeah. get that. Elvis was a beautiful man. Yeah, he was, yeah. I mean, just top ten faces of all time. Elvis Presley. <laughs> there you go. It's well, quite, we're doing a lot of top doing, tens today. If well. you, if you, who else should be in our top ten faces of all time? This is 0800 600 600. Uh, ring before six pm and do ask Bill Pear's permission. Uh, so you know, it's 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 fascinating to me that you know I'm trying to get my head around why people would react like that to the Beatles, and it wasn't just a music. It was it was very much a. It was a moment. It was a movement. If it was a moment. It was a movement. Yeah, yeah. Paul was only nineteen, but Miles was older. All, all that sort of stuff. He was older than nineteen, obviously. But uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. But okay, so you mentioned Walk the Line there, and mm. I've seen a lot of people say that it's it's wild that this movie exists in a post Walk the Line world. Mm. <laughs> But I think it's. I don't think it does I, I think, walk the line. I think it avoids a lot of the walk the line it tropes. Doesn't not, walk the walk the line line. Yeah, not all. Of, sorry, we're not walk the line. Walk, walk hard. hard. Walk, walk hard. hard. Sorry, but we're also post walk the line. Walk the line yeah. Yes, but you're right. Walk hard. Yeah, Dewey it, Cox. It, yes, it doesn't avoid all of the Dewey Cox pitfalls, but it it avoids many of them. And I think I th I feel like Baz watched it. I feel like Baz watched it and and made some notes. And and I think some things you can't get past. Look, these guys all went on tour, all had a dizzy, dizzying rise to success, all got screwed over by somebody, whether record company or their manager in this case or whatever. Um, all struggled with substance abuse. All mm -hmm. had failed marriages. You know, th there's there's only so many variations you can get when you have when you have those beats in someone's life. Uh, but it did. I mean, it did avoid, you know, they have mention of the Beatles, for example, but it did avoid, like, showing us him meeting the Beatles. Yeah. It did avoid hitting those sort of, like, let's fill this with as many other pop culture characters as possible. No, kind of uh, no Nixon meeting. No Nixon meeting. He was a um, he was a f good friend with uh, Mae West, weirdly. Now, yeah. I actually would have loved to see that in there because I think that would have been hilarious. And Bruce but, Lee, apparently, as well. But Bruce Lee, and yes, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But they did, so they didn't go in for that kind of cheap... Oh, let's let's show how important this guy was by showing who he was friends with, kind of thing. Mm. 
so they they avoided a lot of the walk hard um, cliches. Having but, said that, if they'd had the Beatles, you know. they should have been played by Justin Long, yes. Paul Rudd, Jack Black, and Jason Schwartzman. <laughs> With those accents. With those back. accents. By the way, the only one who even comes close to nailing the accent is Justin Long. And I love how the other three don't even really try. Not even slightly. Oh God, Paul McCartney, you're a <laughs> cunt. If, if you haven't seen Walk Hard, I can only recommend it. It's. Uh, See, I it's don't love that film, but the Beatles scene is genius. The Beatles scene is genius. I just, I think there's a lot of good stuff in that film where, where uh, you've got John C. Riley claiming to be. F- 14. <laughs> I, am, I am here for that. There, there's a little bit back. of that in this film as well, of course, when you've yeah. got Austin Butler going from, what, teens to 40s. Yeah. Taron Egerton did the same thing True. in Rocketman. True. And, yeah. and Rocketman was another film, I think, that avoided all those walk-hard mm-hmm. pitfalls as well, mainly by leaning into the, the excess of it all. Indeed. I think because both of these films, Rocketman and Elvis, as much as they have quite different approaches they each also have the approach of let's imbue this film with the energy of the performer and get the sense of who this performer was through the feeling of the film beyond just we'll tell you their life story yeah and i think that energy is really what sets elvis apart from things like bohemian rhapsody or uh respect or it is just the level of over the top kind of camera movements and edits and all the all the craziness going on visually with this film it's not just pure stylistic fluff it is all about getting the sense of Elvis across and i think you feel that as you watch it and it sets it apart from a basic sort of tell you the life story even though what this film basically is doing is just doing the life story in chronological order I think that's true. I think it, like it didn't always get under the skin for me and get to the heart of what he felt about everything. It, it did at moments, but not not consistently. I yeah, thought, through yeah, the film. Good point. Um, but what's interesting as well, and just as you say that, I'm I'm sort of thinking another thing that's interesting about Rocketman and and Elvis is they kind of have a bad guy in a way that others of this genre don't have a specific figure who had a major impact on the artist's life, and you know force them in a new direction maybe or force mm-hmm. them in a, in, in, in a different direction and that I think sets this apart and and it's interesting to me that he's gone with this with having the colonel essentially be the narrator and being having him so blind that he, he doesn't see that even in his own telling he's the bad guy even in his own account of what he did he's the bad guy here um, it's almost like Ridley Scott's uh, The Last Duel last year where you've got somebody giving their own kind of events and, and you're sitting going, well, yeah, you, you're still super guilty, dude. What? <laughs> um, so, you know, yeah. so and it's it, that's interesting to me, to me that we're playing with guilt and we're playing with uh, morality and who's good and who's bad in that way and that, that, we, that we're representing people as they see themselves and, and even then it doesn't necessarily help them much. They're still awful hu- human beings. Can we talk about the Tom Hanks performance though? Because... <laughs> The, the whole, everything about Colonel Tom Parker in this movie, he is played like a pantomime villain down to the prosthetics, which I think are very self-conscious, like showy Tom Hanks in a fat suit prosthetics. It feels very like purposefully over the top. The accent he's doing, the choices he's making, it honestly was part of the crazy energy of this film for me that I was like, on the one hand, you have Austin Butler just like put in everything down there and just 
like getting all the Elvis mannerisms and like coming to life so much in the performances and and really getting all those all the kind of meats in between in the in the dialogue scenes and just giving this incredible performance that I, I hope we're still talking about when Oscar time comes around. And then the Tom Hanks stuff, you get him looking like the penguin cackling off in the corner going, oh, I make the money. <laughs> this like gold member accent. What was going on? It was a bit lady killers, wasn't I it? I love gold. <laughs> it wasn't far off that. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's true. I, I think I, I love that about Tom Hanks, the sort of id gaff period of his career. Uh, where he just, because you, know, you always think of Tom Hanks as a lovely, warm, funkular presence. And now and again, he can take wild swings. I mean, certainly, you know, one of the reasons I fell in love with Tom Hanks was because of the wild swings he was taking comedically, uh, which he, he, you know, then transitioned into being more of a serious actor throughout the rest of his career. But I love the fact that in, his, in, the, in the sort of the last 10, 15 years of his career, he can go absolutely batshit crazy mm. and things like Cloud Atlas and then and then this as well but also play Mr. Rogers and play him yeah. brilliantly <laughs> uh, so yeah I, I love the performance I think it's really interesting I think also this this decision that, that Baz made to have the Colonel being the narrator is is fascinating you're talking there Helen about how we don't really get a, a glimpse of, of Elvis's inner life quite a lot and I think this is a really great way of getting past that mm-hmm. Because we're seeing true. the colonel's recollections of what happened. It's interesting when the movie begins to move away from that a little bit. But even then, act, acts of rebellion like the comeback special and like singing If I Can Dream instead of doing a Christmas song in a Christmas jumper, uh, you know, is framed through the colonel's yeah. enmity to I, buy, I, about that. I almost would have liked if, if they'd focused in then a little bit more on that relationship and made that more, more consistently central to the movie. I think it was... Mm-hmm. pretty central but I I feel like there are bits where we just swerve off and we talk about Priscilla and there are bits where we swerve off and we talk about his relationship with other artists and and you know I think if you had there, there's maybe a more disciplined version of this movie which was probably not a Baz Luhrmann version of this movie <laughs> and maybe wouldn't as you say capture Elvis uh, you know quite as well as the as the wild energy this movie did but you know that there, there is a that's that would be a very interesting spine to to the movie and have and you could still have the colonel narrate it you could still have that but just show just their relationship and make that consistently your through through way I think that could work but but yeah I mean we do go off and just spend time with with Priscilla who by the way was a tiny teenager a very very young teenager when they met I, mm, which we just brush aside. I feel like a lot of the army years stuff they kind of skipped over in this film as somebody who knows of the army years as a thing but doesn't necessarily know exactly what was happening in that time whether he was writing and performing while doing the army thing or if he was literally off like I don't still don't really know what that period is because they kind of skip over that in the movie and I guess the Priscilla stuff all ties into that where they meet because he's in the army mm-hmm. yeah um yeah. So there are, as much as I do think, as I said, on the one hand, it's kind of doing a condensed and comprehensive version of Elvis. There's still questions that I have of like, what was this about? And and you're right in that it does veer around in several directions whilst also trying to present the Colonel Tom stuff as the spine. For me, I don't think I needed that as the as the way into this story. Like, it didn't offer enough dramatic weight to be like oh I totally see why they made this 
yeah. Colonel Tom Parker's movie, but if it gives us the Tom Hanks death dream, <laughs> I, like, I'm in for the weird. That's weirdness. all you want, isn't it? That's all you want. Yeah. Is it, what is it about Tom Hanks, do you think, in this era? Like, he obviously made that thing you do, um, which is a really charming movie. I really, really like it. Yeah. Um, set only slightly later than this. And he's obviously got a bit of a fascination with you know, this culture, this music, this he's a, energy. He's a historian in many ways, he isn't is, he? Yeah, if you talk to him at all about, you know, I had the pleasure of talking to him for an hour by saving Private Ryan. Uh, and it was basically like, oh, it, was, yeah, his, it was like a history class. Yeah, his World War II with, knowledge is Oh, it's staggering, oh, yeah. 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 Mixed with recollections of, you know, filming and saving Private Ryan. And I imagine he's the same on 50s and 60s mm. music. And I imagine Elvis was a huge touchstone for him also. And, you know, again, and this is from an Elvis fan, a late blooming Elvis fan and someone who grew up surrounded by Elvis not literally that would have been weird uh, and not an expert but it seems to me that you know the, even growing up you know obviously Elvis had died uh, 1977 he died and even growing up there was already suspicion about Colonel Tom Parker mm. and his relationship with Elvis and you know I think most Elvis fans would look upon him unfavorably, shall we say. And the movie, I think, is is really, you know, I said this to Baz in the interview at times, it, it feels a little bit like the movie plays like a, it is a tragedy, what happened to Elvis. Uh, you know, you could discuss, and perhaps we should discuss it right now, that's literally what this podcast is for. You could discuss who was ultimately responsible for what happened to Elvis, for the addictions that consumed mm. him, for the career cul-de-sac that he went down. The movie talks an awful lot about, you know, how much Colonel Tom Parker, you know, just kind of siphoned off any requests that didn't suit him or that made him uncomfortable in some way or maybe would have, you know, highlighted or the fact that he apparently didn't have a passport and was an, an illegal immigrant in the States and would have been deported had that really come to light. You know, think people would go, where's that accent from, Tom, exactly? <laughs> maybe maybe, maybe I'll dig into that a little bit more. But all that stuff, clearly the movie lays a lot of the blame at, at Colonel Tom Parker's door about not traveling. Not, you know, Elvis's big dream was, to, was mm -hmm. to tour the world. Instead, he ends up doing that Vegas residency that ultimately, I think, is one of the things that kills him. Yeah. But how much of it should have been laid at Elvis's door? Well, as well? look, I mean, obviously there's you know, such a thing as personal responsibility and, you know, you should... You, he was a grown man and he had all the resources in the world if he wanted to start a fight with Colonel Tom, you would have thought. However, equally, you know, there's such a thing as coercive control. There's such a thing as pressure. There's such a thing as somebody who has wormed their way into not just your life, but your affections, your entire family circle, who has made mm -hmm. themselves part of your web. And it's not easy to to escape someone like that. I mean, you know, the, the movie very convincingly makes the case that he was Elvis's sort of Svengali and that Elvis felt he had done something for him to get him where he is. He had come to rely on him. Um, he had come to depend on his advice. And then, you know, obviously, when that ceases to be good advice, when that ceases to be good for you, it's it's difficult to to see the moment maybe where it switches. And I think there is, a, you know, it, this is absolutely a tragedy, this film, but I think there are those moments where you can almost sense that maybe this is an opportunity to escape and the, mm -hmm. and the special mm -hmm. being one of those. Maybe this is a new dawn and then he he just brings him back in. I, th I think this, you know, this, this movie is certainly not kind to the colonel. Um maybe it wasn't quite as clear-cut as we're seeing. Maybe Elvis was weaker uh, than we're seeing in terms of, you know, 
pushing for his own, for, or seeing any other interest and not just going with the path of least resistance. But um, there's a case to be made for responsibility, but there's also a lot more going on here than than simple responsibility, I think. I think as somebody who only really knows this part of the story through the telling of this film, I don't know how literal this is or how metaphorical it is, but I thought it really got a sense across towards the end of it almost being this dark fairy tale where he is trapped at the top of the tower alone, almost like a like a princess character from a fairy story, like stuck alone at the top of the fanciest building around but he can't escape and he's surrounded, trapped within this luxury in this life that he desperately wants to leave and he can't. Mm-hmm. And that that did really feel tragic. I think it did a good job of laying out the various factors that meant that even though, yes, he is in this Vegas residency, which on the one hand is a major money spinner, a, a huge deal in every sense, he is also out of options. He is sort of cut off from everyone else um, and has cut himself off from from the rest of the world and how, yeah, isolating that is and how that would have fed into the drug use and but then how that would feed back into him being isolated because exactly. of the drugs. And mm-hmm. you really got the sense of this of this cycle, this spiral that I think you feel quite a bit before it gets there that like, oh God, this is this is the beginning of the end. Yeah. I mean, look, there are ways to get out of such situations, obviously. Like, you know, there are lawyers who maybe could have helped him. There are journalists who maybe would have taken up the the call if he'd been willing to be vulnerable publicly, mm-hmm. which maybe he wouldn't have been for a man of his generation, his background. But yeah, it is. it does present a really compelling picture of, you know, him being... I mean, it's trapped in a golden cage. Part of the reason he didn't want to leave was he would, was told he'd lose everything. But other artists through history have made that choice, have lost everything and rebuilt themselves, you know, and, and he, at least in this telling, didn't. So that's the tragedy, though, isn't it? That's the tragedy of the of the film. It's it's him mm. not just being that he's trapped, it's that he is trapped by his own desires and shortcomings, if you like, mm. as well as by the connivance of this user. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one last thing I want to talk about before we wrap this up is how you feel the film depicts uh, performance, some of the great performances of Elvis's career, and how it approaches the act of creation, which I think is always really interesting with these things. Because it's, it's you know, I think it's one thing that Bohemian Rhapsody gets right is the Live Aid concert at the end mm-hmm. it gets that sense of performance it gets you know that's Rami Malek's great it's Freddie in that moment and the music's great which always helps I think it's less good in fact I think it's downright bad at depicting things like the act of creation it's so by the numbers it's yeah. literally you know it's, it's almost literally like oh I'm feeling under pressure right now and then <laughs> next thing ding 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 yeah ding, ding, ding. it on feels the, a little bit like that on the other hand you know I absolutely agree It, it it's really cliched in some of those scenes but at the same time then you watch the Beatles documentary Get Back and they they literally are like just writing a bit of a song you know you know and you're like ooh that's a bit of a song I know mm. that's what you know it, it, there is a, there is a moment where suddenly something snaps into focus and I guess filmmakers because they take the shortcut and have to get to the point of the scene and they have to get to that moment without going through all the Piano twiddling in between, it, yeah. it can feel a little. 
cliched. But if if someone were, say, for example, a filmmaker, uh, and I think on Bohemian Rhapsody, for all the good movies that he'd made in his career, to that point, Brian Singer was not... Uh, how can I say this? I don't think he had the greatest of touches with the material uh, on that on that movie. And I know, obviously, he didn't complete that movie and Dexter Fletcher came in, but... I think that I think it, it didn't quite have a a light touch in true. the film, very, shall we, very shall we true, say? So, very true. so say and, it, and director, it's not like it's not like in Get Back, someone came in and said, "God, I had a long and winding road to work." Precisely, this that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> so, if if for example, that Brian Singer had made a version of the Beatles making Let but Let It Be, what became Let It Be, you would literally have going, "Hey, Paul, why don't you get back into the recording studio?" And he go, "Oh yeah, back, back, oh thumbs up, wacky phone. Yeah, and then he'd start, you know playing the riff whereas what you get in the documentary is a man just strumming his bass guitar and then two minutes later one of the greatest rock songs of all time begins to pour out and it's just like it's wild it sort of plops out there doesn't it it's crazy it just sort of falls out of nowhere <laughs> it's actually something that the Cynthia Erivo genius series on Aretha does quite well is showing some of the Muscle Shoals recording sessions the creation scenes in that are very very good there's a there's a there's a visible sort of evolution from a basic line to the song we end up with mm. um, which which I really like um, Was Aretha a songwriter? Yeah How many uh, you know, did she write the, the great songs because Respect wasn't hers so is that the, the, But the arrangement of Respect was hers Precisely Okay So, but because Elvis wasn't really a songwriter and I think that's interesting because the, the act of creation that we see Elvis undergoing in this movie is lyrical maybe you know there's that moment where they're kind of putting together if I can dream in a fairy movie movie way which wasn't really the case uh, is my understanding the night before they sang it that the comeback specialist not how the song was was made but hey it works well on, on screen and it was as an, an arranger you know so when you see him directing his orchestra and directing his backing singers on the on the stage of Vegas all that stuff's really really scintillating but you know for, for the most part he was singing other people's songs but I think the movie really gets across the energy of performance. And Austin Butler, for me, just absolutely nails it. Mm -hmm. The Compact Special, which is like this one of these big flags in the sand in, in Elvis's career, is just such a great sequence for me. I, that is the moment where, okay, the movie's slowing down a little bit now. And it's such an important moment in his career that the film takes time to depict it. It feels almost in its entirety. Of course it isn't. But I think it's really, really fascinating. And his performance in that of If I Can Dream is is just absolutely, is a powerhouse. I think it really got us across the sense of, uh, yeah, how much of a big shift in his creative life that was and again as somebody who came to this as relatively an Elvis agnostic you go oh I recognize that outfit I recognize that whole setup and going oh this is the comeback special this is this particular iconic image of Elvis comes from that moment that that was kind of satisfying to see and yeah the, the, this sense of a slightly more grown-up Elvis in that performance from the sort of teen wonder years to like this more seasoned and more grounded kind of performer, but still with all of that charm and that charisma. I think it's really fitting. Obviously, it comes from a factual place, but his obsession with um, with yeah Captain Marvel as a character and, and the way that he adopts the sort of lightning bolts um, emblem, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the cape, felt very 
apt to me because those the energy of the performances and also as you say he's singing other people's songs so you don't have that like kind of oh I'm, I'm strumming around and then suddenly oh I've written this song it's more that it's like he is just a lightning bolt out of nowhere who just crashes into the stage and just explodes with all this energy and it feels like the the songs and the performances come from that place too especially early on yeah, I agree. in the film yeah. Yeah. and which then makes an interesting contrast when you get to obviously as you're saying the comeback special but also the Vegas residency where you see him more in command and building the arrangements um, but f- aside from those sequences, for me, it's just like he is this bolt from the blue, and the, and him and the sound and the songs come basically fully formed, like a like Aretha. He transforms yeah. fairly mundane songs or or songs that could be mundane or arrangements that could be mundane, and he just gives it that that oomph, mm. a bit of willy. You know that comp- that the if I can dream, I know I keep harping on about it, but it's my favorite Elvis song. Great song. Um, uh, and. That performance for me is here. We go again. One of the top ten performances of all time. Like of, of if you took a, a single performance of a single song live, that would be one of the top ten performances. Like Whitney Houston doing the national anthem. Precisely. And if uh, if you know what the other eight performances are, then do uh, do phone in. We're oh eight hundred six hundred six hundred. Please do ask the bill payer for permission. Uh, you know because it's so good. It's just a bloke standing against a background. You don't see the band. He's not playing an instrument. He's just singing it. And by Christ, he gives it some welly and really injects some meaning into those lyrics. And that whole bit, that whole that whole part of his career, for me, you know, it's one of the tragedies of the film because it kind of shows you what he could have done mm-hmm. had he been allowed to take control of his career musically. If he'd really been allowed to keep evolving, yeah. I think is is the key thing. And and you know, you you do see traces of it in other artists from the same time period. You know, you've got Ray Charles doing country and making that somehow mm-hmm. into soul. You've got, uh, you know, Frank Sinatra obviously having a great movie career a little bit earlier, as well as having his recording career. You have other people venturing into whole other areas and Elvis just being fairly limited. And, I, you know, I think you do see him pushing as far as he can there and pushing himself in new directions and then even that becoming a cage, you know. So see, go, seeing him go from the special to the Vegas years... And seeing even that kind of calcify around him mm-hmm. is really, really heartbreaking to watch. Even though, you know, some of those, even through the obvious problems, you can still see why people would turn out and pay big money for those performances, mm-hmm. even even there. Any last thoughts before we wrap this bad boy up? Bring, bring. Oh, hello. Bring, bring. Hello, we got the caller. Yeah, caller on line two. Yes, hello. Hi, is that Chris? It is. Hi. Hi, caller. Hi, Chris. I've been listening in and uh, I heard your conversation about the top 10 performances of all time. Oh, great. Yeah, fantastic. Do you have one? Yeah, I've got one. It's definitely in the top 10. It is uh, Bruce Springsteen's performance of Rosalita from the 1975 to 1985 live album. (laughs) It is astonishing. It's nine minutes long. It's basically the most exciting piece of music you'll ever hear. Got to be in the top 10. (laughs) Uh, tickets go on sale tomorrow, Ben. You can, uh, I got mine in the pre-sale two days ago, Did and you? I do not want to think about how much they cost. But yeah. next year will be a great time. I don't think I'm going to do it. I it's don't think I'm going to do it. I just spent a lot of money on Liverpool tickets today. So, <laughs> sadly, 
Your other boss. My other boss, yeah. Jürgen Norbert Klopp or Bruce Springsteen. Uh, I had to go with Jürgen. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Bruce. I'm sorry. Uh, but there you go. Thanks, caller. Thank you, caller I've never met before. That's that's great. Do we have Thanks another caller much. in line two? Do we have another caller in line two? Uh, I already give you one. Oh, uh, bring, bring. Bring, bring. There we go. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yes, caller. Yes, I would like to nominate another one of the greatest performances of all time. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from... London. This is great improv. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and yes, and. yes, and yes, and I am calling from London. You could have literally been anywhere in the world. You chose where in... you are right now. I, I would also like to say not to break the illusion, but Helen did look around the room <laughs> as she said, I was London. "Looking for inspiration." <laughs> I'm from lamp. I'm from, I'm from window. I'm from mug. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's uh, turn to the catchphrase. Say what you see. Uh, all right, caller. <laughs> yes, on line two. What is your what is your nomination? Well, I was going to go for BB King, actually performing in front of um, Trinity College Dublin uh, when I saw him there because I was there, and so I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> it's specifically what you brought to that performance. Specifically, that made it great. the fact that I got to see him live. That's all I, did. I just wanted amazing. to see that. Say that really. All right. Okay. So we're 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 getting closer to completing the top ten faces of all time, the top ten singers of all time, and the top ten performances of all time. And I think this podcast is a shoe in for the top ten podcast of all time, if you ask me, because that is it for our, or at least the top ten Empire Podcast spoiler specials dedicated to the film Elvis, directed by Baz Luhrmann, released in the year twenty twenty two. It's got a shot at being in the top. Let's be honest, a hundred of those. <laughs> but, you know, never stop dreaming, as Elvis once said, probably. Uh, right, that is it for our Elvis spoiler special. Thank you so much for subscribing, as always. Our next spoiler special is probably going to be The Black Phone. Uh, whether we record it now or not, I do not know, but that's a conversation we'll have off mic. In the meantime, it is time to say goodbye to my two colleagues of such a lethal cunning. Ben Travis has left the building. We can't go on together, Chris. <laughs> Such a shame, Ben. Such a shame. Uh, it's goodbye. Caller on line number two <laughs> from London has left the building. H- have they? I don't know that person. It's just me here. Just Helen. Hi. It's uncanny. It's, it's absolutely wild. Goodbye, Helen. I'm caught in a trap. Yeah. And uh, I can get out, thankfully. And uh, that's exactly what I'm going to do right now because Chris has left the building. Oh, thank you very much. Oh, oh.